This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss development shaping industries, markets, and the global economy. I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. Today, we're going to talk about gene editing, which is an emerging and, in the words of our analysts, transformative biotechnology on the verge of rapid growth that has the potential to cure genetic diseases. A wave of innovation and M&A activity in the space is capturing investor attention. So I've asked Salvine Richter, our lead biotechnology research analyst in the U.S., to join us to walk through the latest developments, the most promising applications, and the outlook for broader adoption. Salvine, welcome to the program. Allison, thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics. For those who aren't as familiar with the space, what exactly is gene editing? So gene editing is a versatile tool, and it's capable of making permanent, precise edits to the human genome. So I would think of it as a molecular scissors that really works to provide functional cures. And the spectrum of these different types of edits that can be made are growing as the technology evolves here. It is a revolutionary technology, as you mentioned, and we really do think it's poised to move the era of genomic medicine forward. There's an increasing focus here on evaluating the next frontiers in biotechnology, and we do view this as poised for rapid growth. And how does it differ from the related field of gene therapy? The technology itself has the ability to address some of the challenges that are faced by gene therapy that you mentioned, and also expand the addressable pool of disease areas, if not improve upon options for these diseases. So the difference, I would say, versus gene therapy and gene editing is that gene therapy is not always curative. And here you're talking about curative therapy, but you're also talking about the ability to expand upon different diseases and maybe target more than you could with just gene therapy. So from what I understand, the potential applications of this technology are very extensive. So in your view, you know, what are the most promising in the near term and maybe even over the longer term? So I would think about it as right now we'd go after the easiest targets. So targets in the liver, targets in the eye, neurological targets. Those are just areas that we've seen proof of concept right now in moving forward in gene therapy. And so we'd expect gene editing to kind of follow suit. And they're starting with diseases of the liver. And then they're specifically looking at diseases where there's one defect or one mutation versus a multiplex disorder where there's various mutations. Those will be probably what's next in the future. And so we've seen nice success here outside the body or ex vivo as we've looked to sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, and then cancers. And then we're starting to see approaches where we have in vivo gene editing or in the body. And this was some of the big data that we saw last year where we saw improvement in a disease known as a rare disease known as TTR. And then also we've seen edits in the eye, which is a closed system. So that's where we're starting. And then we would expect definitely a revolution here and where this could go. So just to understand that a little bit better, if you have a successful gene therapy for some of the diseases you just mentioned, ultimately you are saying there's going to be a curative gene therapy treatment. How will this transform the way we treat these diseases? So in the non-cancer settings, those could look to be functional cures or these therapies could look to be functional cures. In cancer, you could argue In certain settings, it could be cure-like, but generally you're just talking really about extending life 
and improving benefits. So they won't be functional cures to the extent of what we're seeing in the other disease areas or like a rare disease like TTR, where you truly are removing symptoms and evidence of the disease. So when you talk about some diseases where this type of therapy can be quite effective and curative versus cancer, what is the difference between them? So the difference here is outside of cancer, you can have a disease that's caused by, let's say, a defective gene. And so what you're doing is you're going in to replace the defective gene with the correct gene. You're editing the gene or you're just cutting it out. And so you're getting rid of the cause and therefore you're curing the disease. Cancer is just more complicated. You have mutations that have caused a disease, and so you're really going in to combat the disease itself. So there could be a case in a last-line setting that you get something that appears like a cure, which puts you in remission, but essentially it's going to be much more about improving life and expanding a disease-free state than it will be in the non-cancer settings where you really are getting rid of the disease and the symptoms associated with it. So we're hearing a lot about CRISPR technology. So tell us a little bit about what that is and how that fits into the gene editing picture. So there are a bunch of gene editing technologies and they've existed for a long time. The reason we hear about CRISPR-Cas9 to the extent that we do, or just at this point CRISPR because there's other aspects beyond Cas9, is really that it is a very adaptive system. It's easy to use. So it's a tool and a technology at the same time. It's bacterial based, but really the extent of the ability to cure that we're seeing with this technology and now the innovation that's being driven around CRISPR is exciting. So CRISPR in itself, just to be clear, is a gene editing tool and technology that's helping some of the advances you're talking about. Exactly. So last year, we did see the first successful in vivo proof of concept with the CRISPR technology. You mentioned in vivo being basically that you are editing within the body instead of taking out cells from the body and editing it externally. So what's the outlook for getting that type of technology into clinics? How far away are we from that? And, you know, what are you watching to gauge how far away we are? So first, we're watching the ex vivo regulatory process here. So at this point, there are two companies that are partnered with an ex vivo outside the body CRISPR-Cas9 gene-edited therapy. And they're guiding, these companies are guiding to a year-end regulatory filing this year. So potentially an approval next year. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the FDA and even the European regulatory body do in terms of their want for approval here. They did issue some guidelines last week where they detailed 15 years of follow-up data and so forth. And so I think we're going to get an understanding on the regulatory side here. In vivo is just a bit more complicated because you're editing in the body. There, the lead program is what we mentioned, which is in that rare disease TTR. So the companies that are developing that drug are now going to move into a pivotal study and then move forward for approval there. So we're here. These drugs are in the clinic. They're up for approval. So it's exciting times. So you just mentioned regulation. You know, we've seen some important regulatory developments. We've seen the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office recently decided that CRISPR technology is the intellectual property of Harvard and MIT after what was a long legal battle with other institutions. So will this ruling impact future regulation in the space? How will it impact the space broadly? 
So it is possible that the decision you referenced will be appealed to the federal circuit and be in litigation for some time. Overall, we think the possible outcome is then the technology will just be out licensed on a per company per product basis. Ultimately, we don't think the ruling is going to have a major impact on innovation per se. As we've seen with gene editing, there are new technologies that are in development. This is going to be a very dynamic field. And then again, we'll get a better understanding from the FDA as to what they need from their regulatory side. But from the IP side, we just do think in the case of a ruling coming down and one company being awarded ownership of IP here or a university, that the rest of the companies will just pay a royalty. So we hear so much talking about innovation, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence. They're making such important advances in so many industries. So how could advances in these types of technologies reshape the gene editing space and how research is done? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think we can ignore what's happening on the machine learning AI side and how that's converging with biotechnology. And we actually have written a lot about that area. Here, I believe it's going to initially be used within manufacturing, but then also you're going to see these companies use high throughput screening to identify different CRISPR targets. And I think that's what's getting done now. And that's just the first generation integration. And then we'll see more over time. And so we talked about the regulatory side in terms of, you know, a potential challenge, but you think it's going to be ultimately supportive of innovation. Are there other challenges facing the space that you're watching? I think one thing we are watching is how to think about the long-term situation, because what happens when there's so much innovation is that you have more and more companies entering this space and taking different technologies or improving upon the existing technology. So trying to understand where this field is going and who will ultimately be the winner is something we're sitting here trying to figure out. And, you know, ideally, you're just going to have companies bring in various technologies and then match the technology with the type of diseases or areas they're going into. But we're definitely watching this rapid pace of innovation. And that's something that is, you know, faster than we've seen in drug development in the past. What we're watching aside from the IP situation and the regulatory situation. And one challenge there that we are watching is the pricing models. If you're talking about a one-time functional cure that's going to come out at a high price, and we've seen this now with gene therapy and it's going to play out for gene editing, is the payer systems being able to absorb that. There are going to be three approaches here, one-time payment, pay by performance or value-based pricing or a annuity type pricing model. And that is something we are watching because in the end of the day, these drugs will have to get paid for to then be able to kind of fund the innovation aspect as well. I know you've said before in conversations we've had that it's a challenge for a lot of these companies to have a curative technology because ultimately, again, you know, it's a one-time payment. So can you just give us a little bit more detail about what this looks like from a strategic perspective for the companies who are funding this innovation? When you think about Europe, they have a single-payer system and the U.S. does not. And these payers are used to having, you know, really chronic therapies where you pay annually. And if they were to have patients that they cover switch to a different payer, then that would be fine because they would have just paid for what was used. And here you have two issues that are playing out. One is the high price point where these drugs are priced over a million dollars in many cases. And then secondly, if you were to pay up front for that 
one-time payment and then your patient were to go elsewhere, you know, how do you recoup those costs you played for that long-term benefit? And so that is something that's very debated right now. And I think in Europe, they've been looking at the value of these assets and debating that they can manage the one-time payment model. In the U.S., it's just a bit more complicated with how we structurally are created. But I think the payers have to figure this out because there's more and more curative therapies. Hopefully that will come. And so they have to create some kind of model around this. And it's much easier in a situation, even for the one-time payments, where there's a replacement cost. So if you're already paying a lot for an area like, let's just say, hemophilia, and then there's a long-term duration or one-time payment, but you're saving the healthcare system money, then that's much easier for them to swallow than a new drug curing a disease that has had nothing before. So often when we talk about this gene editing space, ethical issues arise. You know, you hear about designer babies and cloning of sheep. You know, what is your perspective on the ethical issues? So with regard to safety and ethical issues, which we're also monitoring here, one is the therapeutics applications of gene editing that we have discussed are really applied to somatic cells. And these are any cells in your body, excluding sperm and egg cells. Germline editing would affect all cells in the organism. And these include eggs and sperms, and thus edits here could be inherited by future generations. So there's broad consensus among the scientific community that germline editing in humans should not be performed in light of safety, ethical, and social considerations. So that's one area that's being monitored. The other area is potential risks in the context of the edits. So here, we just want to make sure that we don't have off-target edits that lead to long-term side effects. And so when we're looking at these therapies, we're looking at them in the context of the benefit-risk profile. So in a fatal disease, the benefit clearly would outweigh the risks, but we're clearly watching that profile and how that emerges too. Well, let's turn for a second then on the investment landscape behind all of this. We've seen a number of recent M&A deals and venture funding where big pharma has gotten very involved. How do you think this changes the outlook for moving gene editing into the clinic? So I think on one side, because of the data that we're seeing, the clinical data that we're seeing, ex vivo and in vivo, and the ability to innovate at the rapid pace that we can these days, you are seeing significant VC funding that's creating new companies with new technologies and new approaches. And so when you think of the investment landscape, companies could choose to build the technology themselves, they could choose to acquire through M&A, or they could partner. And what we are seeing is that these companies are investing privately they're choosing to acquire, but interestingly, they're acquiring early next generation. And for the later stage companies, it might take validation, like even further validation or maybe understanding of the commercial landscape as well as the clinical regulatory landscape for these parties or acquirers to then kind of step in maybe at a later standpoint. So, you know, we are seeing monitoring from all the large companies and they're aware of what's going on and they're just debating how they make their move in this space. Let's just close and basically talk about the future. I mean, it really is early days for gene editing. But, you know, what are the developments you're watching? What are you most focused on as you see this space evolve? We are watching base editing. This is, so when we talked about the molecular scissors that is CRISPR-Cas9 right now, this would be a molecular pencil versus a scissors. And they can edit single nucleotides. So think about the four most common types of mutations or point mutations you could get. 
We're watching prime editing, which is more of a DNA search and replace word processor that expands upon base editing, and then gene writing. So there's clearly a lot of next generation approaches that are playing out over time. Right. And the hope is, of course, we do end up with a lot of curative technology here. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Levine. This has been totally fascinating. I always enjoy talking to you about biotech and medicine. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll also be diving deeper into some distinct life sciences themes with Amit Sinha, partner and head of life sciences investing in Goldman Sachs Asset Management Division in the coming months. So make sure to look out for that episode. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on Monday, March 21st, 2022. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.